I'm sure you would find it helpful if you had the passage in 2 Chronicles 23 and 24 open before you. And I'd like to take as the theme text of our sermon, uh, 2 Chronicles 24 and verse 2. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Let us seek God's help. Our Father, come now, we pray. Thou fount of every blessing and help us as we come to your word. Illuminate our minds, uh, change our hearts, help us to do what your word would have us do, and in particular, to persevere, to look on to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our great prophet, priest, and king. In his name we pray. Amen. I wonder, have you ever been challenged by the life of a seemingly bright and busy Christian? The rigor to serve in various ways, they seem zealous for the truth, and in many ways they make you feel extremely small. I think we might have felt like that around Joash, the king of Judah, from 835 to 796 BC. With youthful energy, he helped restore the temple of God, which had been desecrated and fallen into some disrepair. We first see Joash as a baby in Second Chronicles, and we didn't read this bit, being rescued by Jehoshabeth, an unsung hero, who in her actions against the wicked Athaliah preserved David's line. And you can read about that at the end of chapter 22. Joash is raised by a godly couple. Jehoshabeth's husband was Jehoiada, the chief priest. And he was a great reformer, as we see in chapter 23, 16, and following, he pledged the people to the Lord. He put a stop to Baal worship. In the years when Joash was a boy, Jehoiada effectively acted as the king regent. And he was an enormous force for good in Judah. And Joash seemed like a zealous young reformer in his stepfather's footsteps. And yet, we see a tragic ending. Joash apostatizes and has Zechariah, who is effectively his brother, put to death for calling him to account. So Joash is a warning light about the danger of temporary faith or apostasy. Some of us will think of seemingly bright and busy Christians who put us to shame, who are now nowhere. And this is sometimes repackaged today, not as apostasy or temporary faith, but as deconstruction. 
Some of the language of literary postmodernism has been brought into uh, matters of faith and people of faith, not just Christianity, but often that's what we hear about. Um, Christians deconstruct. And the idea is, as the devil might insinuate it, that you re-examine all you've ever believed. And it's not that you necessarily need to throw it out and reject it. Maybe you can take it up again, but, but you shouldn't just go along with everything you've ever been told. That's the way the temptation would come. But in practice, it is generally the case that beliefs which don't fit in with our culture are thrown out, or the faith itself is abandoned totally. High-profile examples can be found. Deconstruction is sometimes packaged as hip, the kind of thing you would do over, over a high-end coffee in one of our major cities. And you come out obeying not the Ten Commandments, the, the Ten Commandments, but the Eleventh Commandment, thou shalt be nice. And you're much nicer than the harsh people who insist on biblical truth. But deconstruction is really apostasy or temporary faith. And this category, of course, exists in Scripture. And we should say temporary faith isn't a pretense. You know, it's not like the person who responds at some uh, big crusade or other, and, you know, two days later, they're, they're back to their old ways, and so on and so forth. There's a joyful commitment, it seems, in some way to God and his people. There may even be a seeming longish-term record of faithful service in various roles in the church. Ministers and elders would have no qualms about having such people in the membership of the church or about baptizing them or whatever. And indeed, they have no good grounds for suspicion. Only God can see the heart. And yet in the end, they prove to be false. So this is uncomfortable, uh, but it's a necessary message this is a danger for young people and children from godly families. Is your faith real or are you simply being propped up? Perhaps you've come to here to university. You may well be tempted to question everything and to throw out the uncomfortable bits. But all of us need to ask ourselves such questions. Do you do what is right in God's eyes as long as things are going well? As long as certain uh, people whom you respect are around? So these are the kind of questions we need to think about this morning as we think about this passage. 
So our title is Jewish, a warning against temporary faith. And there are four aspects of the subject I want us to think about. And first of all, let us consider warning signs of temporary faith. Warning signs of temporary faith. I'll probably take longest on this to do a bit of diagnostics. But part of the seriousness of this problem is that temporary faith is hard to spot. I must admit, in reading this account some time ago, I had forgotten about how it turns out. And it was a shock to see what Joash ended up doing. And yet we mustn't be blind to some of the signs that God gives us in this account that Joash's faith may not be the real deal. Let us note two. First of all, Joash prioritized outward activity over inward life. Outward activity over inward life. We are told in verse 4, Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. And this, of course, involves gathering money for the repairs. He wanted the priests and the Levites to get on with it, get it done quickly. He summoned Jehoiada, even in verse 6, to reproach him for not having ensured this was done quickly enough. This restoration of the temple was a worthy concern. There's no evidence that Joash was pocketing the money or anything like that. It seemed he was genuinely concerned that this be done and done quickly. He suggested an innovative approach, the collection chest. And before long, money for repairs had been gathered in abundance. So what was the problem? Well, there's no problem as far as it goes. But 2 Kings 12.3 has a detail not recorded here. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So perhaps there's a warning light here. Matthew Henry says, it is easier to build temples than to be temples of God. It seems Joash was concerned for the temple to be restored, but he was not quite so concerned for worship to be reformed and hearts to be renewed. Jehoiada, on the other hand, promised, uh, prioritized spiritual reformation. We see this in chapter 23, 16 to 17. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, the people, and the king, that they should be the Lord's people. And all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They broke in pieces its altars and images and killed Matan the priest of Baal before the altars. Jehoiada realized, in other words, that there was no point in having everything outwardly beautiful and even correct if people still had the desire for Baal worship. He saw it in a renewal, not just outward activity. The challenge, therefore, comes to us individually and corporately. Are you 
And am I more concerned about building temples than being temples? If all a church's energy is focused on finance and structures and so forth, this can disguise a lack of spiritual vitality. Someone I was reading said that the books of Chronicles honor the work of the bureaucrats. Perhaps so. I've had quite enough of bureaucrats the last couple of weeks. Not anyone I work with, I hasten to add, but people from outside agencies. But perhaps so. It's good, isn't it, uh, that things are done well? And I wouldn't want this in any way to underline the, undermine the teaching from Malachi or, or anything like that. Um, so just remember that. But this must, not nev- this must never be the enemy of spiritual life. Individually, such externalism can happen if we are busy but don't guard our hearts. As Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. All of us need to check our hearts. The young, that our faith is real. It isn't just uh, resting on our parents' faith or the, the, the faith of our friends. The middle-aged need to be aware. C.S. Lewis said that the comfortable years of middle age are excellent campaigning whether for the devil. Midlife crises are no laughing matter. Apostasy doesn't just affect the young. And you older folks, strive to finish well. We see in this book the elderly King Zaza and Uzziah finishing badly. Never be complacent. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We must see that, that it's as we abide in Christ by faith and obedience that we produce fruit and persevere. But then another warning sign is that Joash was dependent on people rather than God. Verse 2, the text I'd like you to take away, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And verse 14 says the same about those serving in the temple as a whole. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. Jehoiada was a great spiritual leader in the nation as well as a father figure to Joash. His 130 years is extremely long at this period in history. It's the longest life since Jacob. And it suggests he was extraordinarily blessed by God. But the problem was that Joash's temporary faith seems to have been dependent on Jehoiada rather than God. But Jehoiada died. And so in verse 17 to 18 we see Joash listening to bad influences. These leading men 
were taking Jehoiada's place, and the king listened to them, we are told. Therefore they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. So Joash's basic heart attachment was to people and idols rather than God. I wonder, could your profession of faith be to please others? It's not wrong to want to please parents and Christian friends. It's vital that we listen to godly advice, as Joash initially did to Jehoiada. And that's what he didn't do after Jehoiada's death. He didn't seek out Zechariah or other prophets. Rather, he listened to these ungodly men, influential leaders who flattered him and may indeed have been amongst those who killed him in the end. So if we are to have persevering faith and not temporary faith, we need godly friendships. But all that said, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If people, even the best people, take God's place, then our faith is built on a shaky foundation that will prove to be temporary. Test yourself. How does your profession of faith stand up when those you most respect aren't around? Do you secretly sometimes find yourself envying the worldly? My foot had almost slipped, as Asaph said, when he, when he sees the prosperity of the wicked. Or even taking too seriously their counsel. There are plenty of people on YouTube or other platforms who will tell you why their, their deconstruction was such a good thing. When you're dependent on people rather than God, such faith will not endure. Warning signs. But secondly then, the exposure of temporary faith. The exposure of temporary faith. I suppose Joash is listening to these ungodly but influential men could be seen as an error of judgment. And it is a particularly strong leader who has never listened to bad advice. And God, in his mercy, we are told, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not listen. And then God sent Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. We read in verse 20, Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you trespass the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. Now, this is a hard message, but of course it's a merciful one. 
Its design is to bring Jewash and the people to repentance, to bring them back. Surely Jewash would listen to the son of Jehoiada. They were practically brothers. And yet his temporary faith is here tragically exposed. Verse 21, so they conspired against him and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, the Lord look on it and repay. So Joash aggravated his sin by rank and gratitude toward Jehoiada and by commanding his son to be stoned. But his greatest sin is turning his back on God. As we read at the beginning of the service, but on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And that is precisely what Joash didn't do. He didn't tremble at God's word. He is Zechariah killed. And hence Zechariah's prayer was justified. It's not inconsistent with praying that God would forgive. To pray that God would do justice. Our Lord took note of this as a particularly heinous sin when rebuking false religion in his day. Matthew 23, 35. On you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. It's this Zechariah that Jesus has in mind. Jesus places Joash in a long line of those who do not tremble at God's word, from Abel at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible to Zechariah at the end of the Hebrew Bible. Second Chronicles in the original Hebrew is the last book. So it's like an A to Z of those who fail to listen to God's word. And sadly, this condition still abounds. Do you have a humble heart that trembles at God's word? You hear it, you realize your feelings, you cry for mercy, or are you proud at heart and perhaps even looking to break the bonds of godly influence? Would university be an opportunity to do that? You might be thinking. Or you, when you move elsewhere for work. At this time of year, we have a concern for, for people on the move. And it's possible even to come to a service like this and it's almost like a sentimental farewell. But you've moved on. Think again, my friend. Think again. Talk to us. 
We too have times of doubt. We too have times of awful temptation to find an exit strategy. Talk to us. If you've had certain props removed and you still remain faithful, that speaks well of you. If God has blessed you with career success and you remain humble before him and his word, that's a testimony to genuine faith. But if you don't prayerfully accept God's word and seek spiritual reformation in heart and life, you ought to be concerned because that doesn't end well. The exposure of temporary faith. Thirdly, the result of temporary faith. Very briefly, we see in verse 23 to 27 that Joash suffers a crushing defeat at the hands of a small Syrian army. What a contrast to Jehoshaphat, who knew a great victory against a large army. He is severely wounded. He is then betrayed by his new best friends and murdered. He dies in disgrace and they buried him in the city of David. But they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Unlike Jehoiada, who was buried amongst the kings. Hebrews 6 challenges us and warns us that there are those who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and yet have not done so savingly, and their fruit is but thorns and briars. We are warned, such are rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So temporary faith, it seems, can go a long way, but temporary faith cannot save, and their end is to be burned. How sobering. But finally, not only do we hear of the warning signs of temporary faith and the exposure of temporary faith and the result of temporary faith, we finally have good news, overcoming temporary faith. How can we overcome this satanic counterfeit of temporary faith. Well, listen to those verses again we had earlier at the children's talk, Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, that is key. And the passage in Second Chronicles prefigures him as our prophet, priest, and king. 
Despite Joash's failings, he does point us to Christ. He's preserved in infancy from slaughter, just as Jesus was. He is a Davidic king. He is blessed with children who extended the line from which the Messiah came. Yet he fails, and even the best kings, David, Solomon, and Jehoshaphat, proved to be failures in some respects. Jehoshaphat's alliance with Ahab prepared the ground for the chaotic circumstances in which Joash was born and becomes king. Ultimately, we can't keep ourselves. We need the great king Jesus, who will defeat all his and our enemies and save us in spite of ourselves. He is seated in glory as king. He perfects our faith. He he ensures we are not only those with temporary faith. Christ is also the prophet who the Old Testament prophets spoke of. Zechariah And his colleagues spoke to Joash. Had he listened, his end would have been better. Twice in Christ's life on earth at his baptism, at his transfiguration, God the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In hearing biblical preaching... We are hearing him. If you listen and you respond, you'll be saved and you will persevere. Our prophet will point out the way that leads to the mansions above. Jehoiada the priest, who was buried among the kings, he also points us to Christ. We see him In chapter 23, 16, in this mediatorial role, bringing king and people together before God in covenant. And Christ is our great high priest who never dies. He has sealed our saving faith through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And when he appears, we shall be like him. Hebrews 7 25, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So come unto him. He will save not only for a time, but to the uttermost and to eternity. You can do what is right. In the sight of the Lord, all the days of Jesus, your priest. That's no temporary faith, but a faith that endures to the end and is saved. Such saving faith gives way to sight of him in glory. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, without you we can do nothing, without you we would fall, and 
whatever position we may have in this church, whether here for the first time, whether in the pulpit as a guest, or whether we are pastors or ministers, we need you, we need you to continue in the faith. But we thank you, Father, that your Son is our great prophet, priest, and king, whom these figures in the Old Testament point us to, and that he can save us to the uttermost. So work, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we come to the Lord's table, let us sing together hymn number 264. Hymn 264, the Saviour to glory is gone, his sufferings and sorrows are past. I love the way this hymn points us to him as our prophet, priest, and king.
Lord our God, we thank you that indeed we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens for us, who is able to sympathize with us when we are tempted because he himself was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So grant that each one of us today, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, would look unto him that we might be saved, that we might continue in this faith and persevere. And we thank you that you keep us. We thank you for the perseverance of the saints and all glory must go to you in Christ's name. Amen.